Will you remain standing with me out of respect for the word and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and we'll read verses 17 through 24. 1 Corinthians 17 as we continue to work our way through this great uh, first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. Here is God's infallible, inspired, and inerrant word. Only, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. So I direct in all of the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called by a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were also become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. And you were bought with a price. Do not always become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Let us ask God for help. O God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong and nothing is holy, increase and multiply upon us your mercy, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal, that we lose not the things eternal. This we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. In a recent book, Charles Ellis tells us the fascinating story of a young man named Pincus Weinberg. The year was uh, 1906 when this uh, 16-year-old young man walked down Wall Street admiring all the tall and beautiful buildings along that storied piece of real estate. And finally he came to a particular building that he thought was most beautiful and tall. It was 43 Exchange Place. And when he got to the very top of that building... What he began to do was walk from office to office, floor by floor, asking in each place if they wanted a boy. In other words, he was asking whether they needed anybody uh, to help him, whether they had employment for him. And by the end of the day, he made it down to the third floor at a small brokerage house, and he asked them if they needed help, and they said no. Well, the next morning... Uh, Pincus went right back to that third floor exchange and asked for the manager and said that he'd been promised employment. Eventually he bluffed his way into becoming assistant to the janitor for $3 a week. Well, what makes the story so fascinating is uh, within just a short amount of time he was promoted to the mail room, afterwards taking charge of that and excelling so well that eventually the business sent him to school And by 1930, he became the senior partner and the man who was Goldman Sachs, the most powerful investment firm in the United States for 39 years. A fascinating story of what one man can do through persevering 
with the gifts that God has given him. Not a mathematical genius, not a child prodigy, not one well-educated, not an exceptional talent by any means. Simply one who understood what his God-given strengths were and knew how to use them with the right opportunities. You say, what does that have to do with our passage here this morning? And I would say that it's very relevant in terms of the principles that we're going to speak about as the Apostle Paul unfolds for us in these few verses here, beginning at verse 17, of the concept of our earthly callings or our earthly vocations. Before we begin to pull some of those principles out, I want us to notice, first of all, that the Apostle Paul is uh, combating an issue here in Corinth, and the particular issue that he is uh, refuting and counteracting is the idea that there are some callings in this life that are more spiritual and sanctified than others. That's the issue here. That's the common theme that we find not only in these verses, which hold some of of Paul's argument together, but it's also part of the the context. We just need to review a minute here and tie things together. First of all, you'll notice that there is this problem in Corinth that they believe, at least some of them do, that there are certain situations and stations and circumstances in life that are more spiritual than others. Uh, You can see a hint of that ideology in verse 1, for instance, with the Corinthian quotation. You remember as we uh, worked our way through that passage, uh, we made it very clear that when Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, that that wasn't Paul's words, that was rather a quotation from the Corinthians who were arguing, as they were in the married condition, that they really should divorce and just separate and lead celibate lives, because that's what is more sanctified and more holy. And of course Paul refutes that thoroughly in subsequent verses, in fact arguing uh, that they were to stay within the marriage state and they were not to deprive each other of conjugal relations. That was the sermon we said that wouldn't receive a G rating. You can understand why. You can see also Paul has to deal with it again uh, in verse 12 and following, with the whole matter of divorce. There were some Corinthian Christians who had the idea that what they should probably do is divorce uh, their spouse if their spouse was not a Christian. And the situation envisions a missionary situation where... uh, Gentiles have been brought into the church who were formerly pagans and unbelievers and all of a sudden they have uh, this yoke where they're married and they begin to think that because their spouse is not a Christian that their marriage is undefiled and unholy and displeasing to God and not quite the higher life that God wants for us. And we saw there that that Paul quickly refuted that, saying the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. And he said, you stay right where you are and you be a missionary to your spouse. Well, when we come to verse 17 and following, we see the same uh, principle at work, but in a different way. Before it was about relationships, and now it's about callings. And uh, the general thrust of these verses is simply this, that underneath the admonitions is the, is the principle or the idea among some of the Corinthians that some jobs, some life callings were better and more pleasing to God. And you could tell whether God's blessing was on your life by the job that you were in. And Paul says very emphatically here in verse 17, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, let him walk in this manner. So what he does is unravel that line of thinking and refute it, and he uses a couple of illustrations to do that. For instance, verses 18 and 19, he deals with the situation of circumcision versus uncircumcision, which certainly would have had 
cultural implications, religious uh, implications, ceremonial implications. But what Paul does is he looks at that situation. Uh, He says in verse 18, Was any man called while he was already circumcised? Uh, He is not to become uncircumcised. Well, that sounds a little baffling. How would you reverse a circumcision if you were a man? Uh, Well, apparently, some Jews attempted to do that in the uh, apostolic era. Because the Greeks thought that circumcision was uh, disgusting and mutilating and uh, was obnoxious. And so some of the uh, Jewish men, in order to fit into the Greco-Roman culture, uh, would undergo a surgery which would in some way attempt to... uh, Reverse that particular process of circumcision physically. Uh, but so Paul says if you come to Jesus uh, circumcised, don't become uncircumcised. And then in verse 19, he says something which is really shocking. He says, Circumcision is nothing. Now remember who is saying that. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who before his conversion would have never uttered those words, in fact, he would have thought that they were utterly and completely blasphemous because being circumcised was a badge of honor to the Jews. It meant that you were somebody. It meant that you were, that you were God's uh, covenant people. It meant that you were special. It meant that you were in full communion uh, with the church, right, the Jewish church. It was the formalizing mark of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul tells us in uh, Romans chapter 4, there was a sign and seal of righteousness that had been given to God by God. And so it was everything in a sense. And we can see that illustrated from the whole concept of proselytes in the New Testament. A couple of different kinds of proselytes there were within the synagogue. There were proselytes of the gate who loved the teaching. They liked to be at synagogue and to uh, hear the word of God expounded and to sing the psalms with the covenant people. And they liked the ethos of, of the Jewish community in a sense. But they, they were really hangers-on because they would not go all the way and receive circumcision. And because they would not receive circumcision, they were never in full communion uh, with the Jewish synagogue. And then on the other hand, there were the proselytes of righteousness received circumcision and followed kosher diets and were fully recognized as part of the people of God. And that's the, that's the background that Paul is used to. But if you really do want to take your life to a higher level, for instance, if you are uncircumcised, if you really do want to have uh, the external and physical marks of assurance that you are spiritually in the right place in life, you need a circumcision. And now what the Apostle says here is something shocking. He says circumcision is nothing. And the reason why it's nothing is because Christ has fulfilled it. Christ has fulfilled the meaning of circumcision. He has become our righteousness. And in His place He has instituted a sacrament of baptism. And so he says, it's not about whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, here is the issue. Here's how you mark out what spiritual maturity looks like. It's the keeping of the commandments of God. He says, here's how we figure out who is a is a person who's living a life that's pleasing to God. Here's what spirituality looks like. If you really want to know, he says, it's not about ceremonies. It's not about following some prescribed rituals. 
He says, do you have a love for keeping God's commandments? It's not that you're going to keep them all for your justification and salvation. Paul is the preacher of justification by faith alone. He's not saying, this is how you get yourself right with God. What he's saying is, here is what a justified, saved, regenerate person does. They endeavor to keep God's commandments out of gratitude. That's how you mark out somebody who is progressing in their spirituality and in their calling. They love to serve the Lord. They, by the grace of Christ, aim at obedience. So, so Paul looks at that one social circumstance and conditioning, uh, or circumstance and uh, circumcision versus uncircumcision, and he says, uh, don't change that. You don't have to change that state, whichever one you're in, in order to uh, have assurance of your spirituality. Uh, second of all, uh, he looks at the condition here of slave or free. Verses 21 and 22, he says, Were you called while a slave? He says, don't worry about it. If you are called as a slave, don't worry about it. He says, in the rest of the verse, if you are able to become free, you can do that too. But you see, he sets up this situation, this contrast between slavery and freedom. And you can kind of see why the Apostle would do that, because uh, it seems that those who were enslaved uh, were laboring under the false understanding that that meant that God's judgment was on their lives. They thought, well, if I've really been set free by Jesus Christ from my sins and from my guilt and from my misery, shouldn't that work its way out and be manifested in the rest of my life? And they were laboring under this notion, this false notion, that somehow uh, they really didn't have God's best for them. That maybe God's, uh, the smile of God was not upon their lives, and so they thought there was something wrong with them, and perhaps they even received taunting and mocking from the free people who were in the church. And what the Apostle Paul says to them, if you're a slave, you need to learn contentment and stay right where you are. Don't worry about it. And then he goes on in verse 22. He said, He who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who was called while he is free is Christ's slave. And then he says something very important. In verse 23, he says, You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. That's very essential to Paul's argument. Paul is referring to redemption. He's referring to the fact that Jesus poured out his life for both kinds of people. For slave and for free. Back in chapter 6, the same phrase was used there. And it was a, a part of the foundation of Paul's call to live a godly life. To flee sexual immorality. There he said, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Here it functions somewhat differently. First of all, this, uh, this declaration of gospel promise that they were bought with a price was first of all an encouragement to the slave. And the, basically what the Apostle Paul is saying is that your life is valuable. You know what? Nobody ever told them that. No one had ever told them that before. And, and number two, there was nothing in their life that they could point to and say, yeah, I, I am valuable in the sight of God. People treated them poorly. They were considered the property of other men. They were not considered citizens of the state. They were really not regarded as people, as humans. 
And no one had ever told them your life is valuable in God's sight. And, and what Paul says, here's how you know. You don't have to tell yourself you're good. You, by your own strength, do not have to conjure up a positive self-image. He says, here's how we know. Because Jesus bought you with a price. Jesus would lay down His life for you. While you're a slave, then you must be something in God's sight. You see, it's about encouragement. Calvin picks up the sense here, I think, very well when he says, this statement is designed to furnish consolation to servants. And at the same time, to beat down the haughtiness of those that are freeborn. He says, as servants feel their situation irksome in respect of their being low and despicable. He says, it's of importance that the bitterness of servitude be alleviated by consolation. Paul is saying, you don't have to flee from your masters and break the law in order to find God's best for your life. He says you have God's best for your life right where you are and you can be assured of that because you have been bought with a price. The second thing I think it teaches here to both slaves and free is that they're equally under obligation to serve the Lord in whatever station of life they're in. Whatever place that they are in, whether it's slave or free, The Apostle says, because you have been bought with a price, you don't serve your boss. You don't serve your master. You're serving Christ in everything that you do. Similar to uh, what he says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. He says, slaves are to obey in all things those who are their masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, he says, do it heartily. As to the Lord, bought with a price. You see, he's counteracting this notion that there are some callings in life that are less spiritual. You cannot determine your worth or your value in God's eyes by the kind of job you have or the social status you have in life. That's certainly the message which Uh, rings loudly and clearly in our society though if you want to have assurance of being somebody you better have a six figure income if you want to have any kind of assurance in your life that maybe and this is sometimes the Christians say this and and, and they don't really mean to say this I think there's 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 a good group of them who really don't mean to say it there's others who say it because they're theologically convinced of it but it certainly does filter into Christian thinking at times that I can tell that God's blessing is upon my life because I make six figures and because I live in a five bedroom house and because I have sport utility vehicles and because things are going so well See, I've been obeying God's commandments and look at all this blessing on my life. Paul would never allow that to stand for a minute. You don't draw confidence uh, that God loves you based upon your life situations. Uh, The apostles certainly didn't. (laughs) Uh, Read about Paul. Beaten 39 times repeatedly. Left for dead three times. Sunk in the deep numerous times despised, mocked, ridiculed. And that's just by Christians. You know, Jesus never promised you a, a gold-plated spoon 
after you come to Him. Jesus never promised a big bank account. Jesus never promised great health. Jesus never promised all of the trappings of materialism and success and what people in our culture today say what is what really counts. Jesus never promised any of those things. Jesus says, if you are my disciple, this is what you do. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you serve me. And sometimes that means you are going to go into poverty. That means you're going to go into struggle. That means you are going to be placed in life situations sometimes. Not everybody will. They're extremely frustrated. Because God has a different plan for each and every person. And what Paul is doing here and what you need to grasp. Because I don't know what your life situation may be. And I don't know what internal frustrations you may be battling. But I have somewhat of an idea of what it is like to live in this place. That is that you don't determine your self-worth or your identity by the things you have or the station in life that you're at. It's about what you are, Christ. He paid for you. And you don't have to go do something Christian to serve the Lord either. That's the last thing I want to go after here this morning. What the Apostle says in verse 20, at least under this point, uh, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. It just might be that there were some people who thought, and I'm, I'm not sure in Corinth because we don't have enough uh, that comes out of the threads of, of the circumstances here to know whether this thought was there, but I know it's in our culture today, so I'm going to have to address it. It just may well have been that there were some people who were thinking that that the more spiritual way of life was to go into full-time Christian ministry. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. It's sort of bandied about in evangelicalism broadly. I've heard it numerous times throughout uh, my life. That if you really want to please God, and if you really want to be used for Jesus, you need to go into full-time Christian service. And that means uh, you should probably become a missionary and uh, mail all of your a few belongings to uh, the middle of nowhere and, and, and go serve Jesus in the middle of nowhere among tribes that have never heard uh, the English language, let alone Jesus. Uh, some people think that they are called to be uh, full-time pastors in the churches or, or go be a part of some Christian nonprofit agency or, or ministry because that really is what it is like to lead a meaningful life. There's the story about the old boy who was a farmer that illustrates this pretty well. Uh, he got converted. and Wouldn't you know it, pretty soon he got an itch to be a preacher. And so uh, he, he really wrestled and struggled with this sense of internal calling. He wanted to show Jesus that he loved him and wanted to go serve the Lord. And uh, Finally, uh, the old boy went down to his pastor and he said, uh, Pastor, I, I believe that uh, God has called me to preach and I think that you need to put me in the pulpit next Sunday so I can, so I can exercise this calling that God has given unto me. And the pastor said, well, let me just ask you a few questions. Uh, he said, do you have an education? And the, the farmer said, no. And the preacher said, do you have any experience at speaking in front of people? And the old farmer said, no. He said, well, do you have any theological training at all? Maybe that'll help. And the farmer said, well, no. They said, well, why, why in the world do you think you're called to preach? Especially next Sunday. 
And the old boy said, well, uh, God told me that I was called to do that. The pastor said to the farmer, well, how do you know God told you to do that? They said, well, last week I was working out in the fields late at night. And what I saw in the sky were these initials, G-P-C. Go preach Christ. And the pastor turned to the old boy and said, well, how do you know that God wasn't telling you to go plant corn? (laughs) That's the point, though, isn't it? How do you know? That's what you are. You're a farmer. Go plant corn for Jesus. You see? Because in whatever calling you're in that is dignified and sanctified and holy and pleasing unto the Lord, because that's where God puts you. That's full-time Christian service. I don't care what you're in, as long as it is a legal and lawful calling, you are serving Christ there, because that's where God wants you. And you will serve Him there more effectively than you will anywhere else. That's full-time Christian service. And it's good. It's good. And it's pleasing. And thankfully, for the most part, most will not be called to the ministry. And I say thankfully because uh, God really has to put His call upon your life to do that. And uh, He must communicate certain gifts and graces and a lot of patience. Because it's uh, very often a very difficult calling. And it's for those who are called to it. But there's no more grace and there's no more spiritual superiority in being a pastor than it is And being a janitor, God called you to do that. Paul says, remain in the condition which you were called. So he attacks this notion of there's super spirituality involved in certain callings. And now we come back to the point that I really want to, to dwell on for just a little bit here this morning. And that is this, that God assigns to each person a calling. That's a marvelous truth. You can see it for yourself right from the Bible. Verse 17 and verse 20. Look at this. I hope your Bibles are open. You're seeing this for yourself. Uh, Paul really accents this here. He says, As the Lord has assigned to each one. That word assigned there literally means to apportion, to divide, to distribute. And, And notice that he says it's to each one. He backs it up again in the next clause. He says, As God has called each in this manner, let him walk. You see, we're looking at individuality here when he says, To each. And then in verse 20, he says, Each man, again, individuality, must remain in the condition in which he was called. Rarely do we have to correct the New American Standard Version. It is the superior translation, as we all know. Uh, But we have to here because condition really does not give the right sense. Uh, Literally, this is vocation. Job. That's what Paul's saying. As each or each man must remain in the job, the calling, the vocation. Now, we put these things together and I, I think you'll see something and we'll come back to it as we apply it. But Paul is saying here that God gives you your job. And more than give you a job, He gives you your calling in life. 
He gives you the desire for a particular kind of work. He gives you the gifts for the particular kind of work. He provides the opportunity for that particular kind of work. He opens the door for you for that kind of work. And He makes you satisfied in that kind of work. We'll have to unpack that. But just one other thing that I want to touch on here before we move into the application of that concept and idea is this, that there is a high premium placed upon labor in the New Testament. It emerges here, it emerges in numerous places in Paul's writings. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28, you don't have to turn there, but he says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. So you have something to share with those who are in need. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 Paul says uh, to the Thessalonians that they are to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and to work with your hands. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 He says if anyone is not willing to work then he's not to eat either. Numerous times we have Paul referring to his own uh, labor with his hands as he constructed tents and made uh, various Uh, Other things. With his hand. That was his trade. That was his vocation. As a rabbi, he learned how to take care of himself financially by learning a skill. But it's emphasized across the New Testament and needs to be emphasized periodically within the church because within, uh, it seems, many generations, if not every generation in the history of the church, uh, this idea has reared its ugly head that the best form of life is the passive contemplative, uh, all-by-yourself, meditative life where you don't work. As if work is something that's bad for people. It's spiritually inferior. It's a lower calling and station in life. It's not God's best. It's not how you reach your spiritual peak. Well, if that's the case, then I cannot figure out for the life of me why Paul says that God gives you, sovereignly gives you a calling in life and expects you to perform it. God does not give you something like that that is so contrary and at odds with what is His will for your life. Work is important. So we come back and we apply these truths this morning. The first truth that I want to apply here is this idea that we picked up from verse 17 and verse 20 that God has given and gives to every Christian a calling or a vocation. God gives, and it's so clear, again, He says, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as He has called each, verse 20, each man. It's so clear that, that Paul is saying where you are in life is not by accident. But He's saying more than that. He's saying that your job is something more than simply a means by which you pay your bills. It's like the, uh, the song that the seven dwarves used to sing, or the eleven dwarves, or I can't remember the nursery rhyme. You know, Snow White and the seven dwarves. I owe, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Isn't that sort of the mentality that everybody has today? I owe, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I, I really don't like work. It breaks up the day, but I'm here because i got to pay the bills. Uh, what, what Paul would say is that's not a proper understanding of work. God has given us callings. God has given us a calling. He says He has assigned. That's a very powerful word. He has distributed to each one a calling. Imagine that, people of God, this morning. 
that the job you're going to go punch a clock for tomorrow at 8 a.m. or wherever you go in is right where God assigned you to be. He's given you that calling. Imagine how that would change our concept of work if we internalize that. This is God's calling. And secondly, under that point that God has assigned to each one a calling, He's assigned it for a missionary purpose. Luther, commenting on this text, said that our vocation is the place where God has called us to be middle Christs to our neighbor. In other words, what he meant is that is the place where God has called you to not only work, but has called you to be there as a missionary. You see, Luther didn't separate, and neither did Calvin, neither did the Reformers, and neither does Paul, this idea that you're called by God unto salvation, and at the same time you experience that sovereign, gracious rebirth in Jesus Christ. God does not take you into heaven immediately to be with Him. He leaves you here in this life, in your vocations, and there, he says, serve me by serving those around you. It's your mission, field. And not everybody has the same ability, the same giftedness, the same temperament to work in all situations to be a blessing to others. You see, Luther's on to something here. You're called to be servants of Christ where you work. If you think about that tomorrow morning as you go to work and as you look around at your co-workers, at your boss, at the circumstances of your place of employment... You're uniquely adapted to and fitted to that. Not everybody is. And because that is God's calling and gifting for you, you'll be able to serve Him well. But underneath this point that God assigns to each one a vocation or a calling... Thirdly, it would be helpful for us to get this point. That if it's true, and it is, because Paul says it is, that the Lord has assigned to each one, whether that's slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised, He's assigned to each one a a vocation and a calling, it would be pretty important for us then to give a lot of thought to what we do in life. A lot of thought and a lot of prayer. What does God have His hand upon me to do? In life, what is my calling? You know, today it's common, and it's probably been common for the last 30 to 40 years, I guess, uh, that we say, just go to school. Just go get your formal education. Just go get your bachelor's degree. Everybody thinks uh, there's at least a mentality, and I'm not saying if school is bad. Uh, I've been in school almost all my life, and I'm still in school, and I fear I'll never get out of school. Maybe that's why I'm saying this, to deliver some of you from school endlessly. But um, it, it almost seems like that's what people say, oh, just go get a bachelor's degree. You all figure, well, maybe that's not the only way in life. Maybe a vocation, maybe a trade, maybe learning a particular skill is what God wants. You need to think about that for yourself. And I have this theory that most people who go to school never end up doing that particular thing that they got a bachelor's degree for in life anyway. So what I would challenge us to do with this is we think about the fact that God assigns to each one His vocation and His calling. It means we ought to pray. God, what is Your will for me? What kind of a calling would you like me to be in? Know that 
when you're in the right place, uh, God gives the abilities, the desires, the giftedness, the life circumstances, the open doors. And when you meet people who know what their calling is, like this Weinberg fellow, uh, they pursue their job with such passion and motivation and determination. It's a blessing to be around. And that could be almost anything. We need to be prayerful about our callings. Secondly, as we apply this principle to our lives, uh, God-given calling means not only we have purpose, but it also leads us to live stable lives. Stable lives. We cannot miss the fact that Paul says, uh, remain as you are repeatedly throughout our passage. Remain as you are. That suggests stability. Again, I quote from John Calvin. I don't always look to him as uh, the final authority in everything, but this week he seemed to have really nailed this passage uh, in a number of helpful ways. And this is one of the things that he said, commenting on this idea that that we're to remain. He says, uh, God knows with what great restlessness human nature flames and fickleness its ambition longs to embrace various things at once. And he says, the curb that rashness God has appointed duties for every man in his particular way of life. And no man should thoughtlessly transgress those limits. In other words, what he's saying is that because God has providentially and sovereignly assigned the giftedness and the calling and the life situation and the open door of opportunity to pursue that particular calling or vocation or job, that without good reason... We shouldn't move. We should stay where we are. We should remain there. And we should aim at serving God in where He has called us. You know, there's a lot of instability and transience in our society today. There's a lot of people who have the grasses greener on the other side of the fence virus. They never seem to stay anywhere. Always moving. Always uprooting. Breaking relationships. Well, there will be life situations where that has to happen providentially, and we'll know them. But for the most part, I think it would be good for us to take to heart what Paul says here in verse 20 and 24. Let each man remain as God has called them. Let each man remain as God has called them. Stability and serving the Lord. Glorifying God and the things that He's given us to do in life. And finally, as we apply this to ourselves this morning, the mere fact that God distributes to each person and assigns unto them their life calling and their vocation, that ought to lead us to a great deal of contentment. A great deal of contentment. Whether God has called us to be janitors or soldiers or police officers or businessmen or pastors or or writers or, or whatever it is, You know, the mere fact that we know this, that God assigns to each His calling, we ought to have a great degree of contentment in what God has given. You say, I know, Pastor Sotel, I know that I'm supposed to be content. I struggle with it. I struggle with it on the difficult days. But I want you to see what Paul says in verse 24 for your encouragement. He says, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that calling in which he was called. 
I hope you caught the accent there. With God. That's what Paul says. With God. You see, it's not just that God distributes the calling to each one. But what Paul says here is that God comes down and is next to you in that calling. That God is with you. You know, God gives people callings that are, some that are more challenging, some that are easier, some that are more rewarding, more exciting, less frustrating, more exhausting. But the fact of the matter is, what Paul says, whatever it is, he's not only distributed that calling, but he's with you in it. He's with you in it. What an encouragement for us on those days when the clock seems like it hasn't moved in two hours. Or when customers are more difficult than normal. Or when you're tired or you're sick or you're fatigued. Or on those some days when your job just makes you feel empty. What Paul would say is, I understand. Because I've worked with my hands too. But here is something you need to take to heart. God is with you. He has not only assigned it, but God is with you. And we all think about that as we think upon these words of Paul here. Help us to see that His hand is upon our lives and be grateful for the callings that He has given to us and to persevere in them by His grace, knowing that He is with us. Let's pray.